Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And this time on SVU, we're pigging out on one of the biggest streaming movies of 2017. So far. It's Bong Joon-ho's Netflix original film, Okja. Later in this episode, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all of them with a theme in common with our main review. And inspired by Okja, Allison actually proposed we do a podcast about the most delicious movie protagonists. Mm, Delicious animals. Charlotte's Web, (laughs) Cannibal Holocaust. I said no, just because super pigs are super tasty. I insisted that was inappropriate to the spirit of Okja. And so instead, we're going to talk about multilingual movies, films that feature lengthy portions in different languages. But first, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Allison, you're up this time. What have you got for us? Well, first up is a movie that we mentioned in the intro just now. It is Song to Song, the latest divisive work from one Terrence Malick. Shouldn't you be whispering this and in a voiceover? Yes, thank you. That's uh, better. It just uh, while I kind of spin in my <laughs> filmy dress and the sun goes down. I'm already more in the mood to watch this film. Yes, uh, I will not claim to love this movie. I think that if you have been like me exasperated with some recent Malick tendencies, uh, in particular, this kind of half-baked and like very indulgent uh, attempt at, I don't know what he's trying to do with these last few, kind of showcasing show business, uh, this one in particular, the music business, you will continue to be annoyed by those tendencies. But I do think that you can't dismiss his imagery. It is beautiful. And this movie ends up maybe more so... Uh, than the last being almost feeling a bit uh, like Badlands in terms of having characters who feel like they're almost defending themselves in their voiceover. They feel like they're almost kind of not just describing their feelings or what's on screen, but almost kind of presenting their own monologues about why they're acting the way they do. And I do think that that gives it a little more interest, even if this one rings kind of hollow in terms of the larger story it attempts to tell. Uh, So 
if you are interested in Malik, and I am always, despite my frustrations, interested in Malik, Song to Song is now available on demand. Uh, available on the 11th on demand is Certain Women. This would be Kelly Reichert's most financially successful movie to date. A triptych of short stories uh, based on a Miley Malloy collection. Uh, three different three different main characters. One played by Laura Dern, one played by Michelle Williams, and one played by Kristen Stewart. I will say of this movie that there is one third of the movie that is clearly the strongest part and I would say justifies watching this movie no matter how you feel about the other two and that would be the Kristen Stewart portion which is this almost achingly bittersweet uh, with longing story of a rancher who kind of develops this unspoken romance sense of romance or at least connection to uh, this lawyer, young lawyer, who comes into town after having driven from very far away to teach a law class. Uh, I do think that that part is sublime. The other two are a little more difficult to parse. They're so subdued that sometimes it can be a little tough to even grasp them. But that that last one, I, I think, is pretty wonderful. Also available on the 11th, Maybe the film I'm, I'm most looking forward to catching up with, given how many people love it, including you, Mr. Matt Singer, mm. that would be A Quiet Passion. Mm. Uh, that is the Terrence Davies biopic, though that seems, from everything I've read, to be kind of an unfair summation. Yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> to, a biopic. To I... imply maybe a certain... I mean, uh, that approach. is what it is. Yes. It's a really good one, but a it really is a biopic. biopic. There you go. Starring Cynthia Nixon as Emily Dickinson and uh, Jennifer Eel, uh, Duncan Duff, Keith Carradine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I like Terrence Davies a lot. I think he, maybe film critics love him more than almost anyone else does, <laughs> maybe than audiences do. But, uh, uh, you know, this is one that I, I just missed it, and I'm looking forward to catching up with it now. I've heard only great things about it. That is A Quiet Passion, and it will be available on the 11th. I took nature and science, and I synthesized. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let listeners determine our main review through a poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. Your choices for this show were Okja, the brand new Netflix original from director Bong Joon-ho, Patterson, the latest movie from Jim Jarmusch, which was uh, produced by Amazon, is now playing on Amazon Prime, and Chronic, which is a drama by Michelle Franco starring Tim Roth as a hospice nurse. The connection between these very different movies where they were all alumni of the Cannes Film Festival. And I can tell you now that this poll was not even close. Bong Joon-ho's Okja was the runaway winner with one of the highest totals, uh, percentage totals we've ever received in one of these polls. Uh, the film and its reported $50 million budget was uh, produced and largely financed, funded by Netflix, who partnered with Bong after the surprising international success of his last film, Snowpiercer, 
In Okja Bong, once again, teams with Tilda Swinton. This time she plays an embattled CEO of a tech and food company who is trying to rehabilitate her business's image by genetically engineering adorable and exceedingly tasty super pigs. That's what they call them in the film, super pigs. She sends these super pigs to farmers all over the world to grow with the understanding that 10 years later, they'll all be returned for a big publicity stunt where they will crown the best super pig and then slaughter them all for their super bacon, super ham, super pork shoulder, and my personal favorite, the super pork belly. Yeah, can you Clearly, imagine what that would I be can't. like? It I can't. I can't. like... Let's let's thick. not even do it. I don't. <laughs> we have to. Otherwise, I'm going to need to take a break for a snack. So let's just keep keep Dude, moving. We're just here. ruthless, is what yeah. we are. Yeah. The title character of the film is one of these super pigs who lives on a farm in Korea with a girl named Mija, and uh, you know they're less like human and farm animal, or even human and pet, as they are basically like two best friends. And so when Okja is taken by Tilda Swinton's, uh, I don't know, emissaries, goons, whatever you want to call them. Mija risks, risks everything to follow her and save her from a untimely but I'm sure very yummy fate. Uh, along the way, she receives assistance from a sweet-tempered animal rights activist played by Paul, Paul Dano. And she also has some trouble with an eccentric reality TV star, eccentric maybe putting it mildly, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Allison Okja became the subject of some controversy at Cannes specifically because it is a Netflix film. It's going to play in a couple of art house theaters in the U.S. and uh, in Korea and maybe elsewhere, but largely it is only going to be seen, and it's largely intended to be seen, on Netflix's streaming service as part of the company's effort to bolster their library of original content that they hold the rights to and can screen in perpetuity. So here is my question to you. Does Netflix's increasing role in the world of film production and distribution trouble you in light of this film? And do you see any comparison to be made between Netflix and Tilda Swinton's company in this film, which creates this incredible new product people all over the world can enjoy without considering the potential collateral damage their creation might cause? It's funny. I actually wrote a piece yesterday. Did you? I think it, it started with the sentence that oh. uh, Okja is about a multinational corporation intent on feeding everyone in the world identical kind of lab laboratory grown garbage, basically. <laughs> and ironically, some people feel the same way about mm. the company that created it. I think that no, I mean you know at at Cannes this was a this, the Netflix logo it was booed. Right. Uh, Pedro Almodovar, who's the um, the the jury president was like, I don't consider a film that does not play in the theater necessarily worthy of the Palme d'Or. Harumph, harumph. Will Smith, who coincidentally has a Netflix movie due yes. out in December, yes. came back to the company for the company. Shockingly defense, defended. It like led his children to explore. He said something to the effect of, of like improve their global cinematic literacy or something. Yes, like that. I believe that's pretty close to the quote he gave. Yeah, uh, and I I think that. You know, over the course of Netflix becoming this giant, like basically nonstop fire hose of content, <laughs> which it has, right? Yes, that's an accurate uh, description. That, you know, movies have been such a kind of small part. They have gotten such little attention compared to the original series that, that the company has put out. 
uh, you know, the company only relatively recently on the scale of things started with movies and it was with Beast of No Nation. And I didn't really know what to do with Beast of No Nation. Kind of, I think, flubbed that, how it handled that um, release. I feel like Okja is a sign that it, maybe it can do right by a movie. You know, this movie got a real push. It got treated as significantly as a new series on Netflix. It is playing in some select theaters. I don't know how it's doing in them, but pe- like theaters have been willing to gamble that people would show up to see it on the big screen. It is an ambitious movie on a budget level that we are told again and again, uh, studios are not interested in it anymore. Right. It is an original story. Definitely. You know, it is, it does not fit into any like a uh, standard marketing demographic by any means. Definitely you know? not. Uh, I am thrilled that it exists and that a company was willing to shell out for it. That said, I saw it on the big screen and I'm really grateful that I saw it on the big screen. <laughs> I think that it is a movie that is vastly improved <laughs> by seeing it on a big screen. Yeah. And I do feel bad that that is an opportunity that most people are not going to have. I think that it looks so it looks so good on the big screen. It is a big story. It yeah. hops continents, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that I look. I went back and watched some of it again uh, on streaming just to kind of get that sense. And it, you know, I it is still like beautifully presented and all of that. But I was really happy to get lost in it on the big screen. Mm. How about you? Well, I saw it on the big screen too, and. Uh, Bong Joon-ho did an interview uh, with uh, my website, Screen Crush, where he said, he he specifically said, the best way to see this movie and the way I prefer to people to see it is on the big screen. Uh, but that said, I, I mean, for all the reasons you outlined, this movie could only exist with someone like Netflix uh, putting up tens of millions of dollars. No studio would ever fund this movie. Or if it did, it wouldn't be as strange and weird and wonderful as it is. It with would the, be meddled with. Oh, yeah. it would be it would be neutered. It would it would not be this movie. It would you know maybe have an all American cast. It would not jump around the world like it does. It would not, I think, have as troubling a final act certainly not there there is no way this movie that starts kind of i mean if it it is very original and very unique if it's like anything it does remind you a little of et i think at the beginning yeah but or but it also reminds me of the host that's true too it does it It does have a little it is a bong joon ho movie but in any event as dark as et gets at times and and et does get a little dark at times Compared to where this movie goes, yes. where it is almost like take it's almost like taking you into like I think I described it as like it's like corporate food hell, like a vision of hell in the corporate food industry that is so disturbing and dark and weird and strange. And yet also not grossly exaggerated. Probably not. No, like definitely not. Yeah. Like that I mean it it doesn't need to make anything exaggerated. You right. know? Like corporate food and corporate like uh, livestock raising, and I say this as a meat eater. We both totally are totally monstrous. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, like it's it's like, well, what did ET need? Well, maybe just a little bit of fast food nation, like some graphic yeah. slaughterhouse scene, like the jungle. Right, it needs so the jungle. So when you say, well, you know, like an, a, a studio would have said, who is this movie for? And the answer is like me. Yeah, like. <laughs> eccentric film lovers is the ultimate answer and it's not for kids certainly and it's not for a huge mass audience so 
this movie could only exist with Netflix. So I think in some senses you're right that it's a shame that people are not going to get to see it on the big screen. Because I also saw it in a in a theater and thought it looked amazing. Thought the effects looked great. Yeah. Thought Okja itself was this incredible effect that you know it's not going to be the same. But it wouldn't exist at all right. without Netflix. So I think that it's a kind of a take the good, take the bad kind of situation. But on the whole, I am really grateful this movie exists. And you touched on another thing that I think is true, which is that Netflix has done a lot of uh, really good TV shows, or at least shows that have gotten a lot of attention. We've talked about a lot of their shows and had problems with some of them, even the ones that are more acclaimed or at least discussed. But really, their film, compared to their TV side, their film slate has just been kind of pathetic. It's just been sad in a lot of cases. Well, it's just been all over the place. Like, they yeah. don't understand what... I, I mean, this year in particular, where they have a lot... They have a huge slate of movies coming out comparatively. I think they have something like like three dozen original movies coming out, some of which are just acquisitions. That they, yeah. But, you know, they still have this tendency to kind of, like, burp them out right. onto their streaming service and being like... The algorithm will take care of this. Right. And, and, like, and some of their choices, you know, like aligning with Adam Sandler and Kevin James, it's like, it's questionable. It's questionable. Uh, but this shows to me like, a, like the taste level here is like off the charts where you go, yeah. when a lot of times you hear about these Netflix movies, you go, what are they thinking? Why are they, like, what, what algorithm is spitting out these weird concoctions? And this is a weird concoction too, but this is one that maybe the, it just, Worked in our favor because this is just so wonderful and weird and uh, unique. And I, I just such a so, so glad that it exists because it, it just watching it. I kept thinking over and over, like, how is this? How am I watching this? How is this possible? How did how did this get through any studio executive, any gatekeeper to say, sure, this sounds like a, an idea that's going to succeed? But it, it does. I'm glad it's I'm glad it's here. Yeah. And I think it's it presents a a vision of the world that Bong Joon Ho has kind of uh, been putting together over several recent films, mm -hmm. including Snowpiercer, including The Host, I think, as well. Yes. Which is this globalized world in which individuals are basically, if they're lucky, surviving. In within the boundaries of a system that just like crushes people, mm -hmm. you know, literally in Snowpiercer, like people are getting like like getting crushed in the gears of this system. Yes, ground up and yes. made into paste. Yeah, and, and like they're living cr like in the crushed, like living and yeah, it's underneath uh, the floorboards of the train. And right, all that, like yeah. it's it. He he continues to portray this world in which and and I, one of the things I admire so much about Okja is that it ends on a happy-ish note that is still like the world is getting worse and like the best you can do right. is maybe hope to shield your love carve ones. out a little this yeah. little piece of paradise right. away from all of that nonsense right. essentially but as but i agree because the movie essentially says because it starts in this beautiful kind of utopian it's just like this, edenic yes really. exactly persimmons and uh fish stew and right. waterfalls but even there the Mirando corporation tilda swinton's company can still reach out and destroy everything you love you know and so yeah there's a i would say it's a, a relatively happy ending but it you're right there is sort of an ominousness to that and and a sense to that even for the characters that are happy or have survived 
that things are not going to be exactly the same as they were. This is like a it's a coming of age story in a sense, but one that's like incredibly depressing. Right. <laughs> well, it, you know, it is also it is a corporate satire and, mm-hmm. and sometimes like a really dead on corporate satire in which we didn't mention this, but uh, Swinton is playing twins in this. Yes. And one twin we only kind of you she casts we a shadow hear about yes. her a lot. She casts a shadow for much. a lot uh, uh, until she appears. Yeah. But it seems for a while that there's like a good twin and an evil twin. And that Lucy Miranda, the twin that uh, is in the spotlight with her braces and her like chipper, you know, kind of attitude and her talk of eco-friendly and low carbon, you know, uh, carbon footprint, minimizing carbon footprints right. and all of the right buzzwords. Uh, and, and the movie is really like, there is no, there is no good twin. Like, capitalism is just, like, a bunch of moral compromises. <laughs> Two evil twins. Yeah, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that, the the idea that Mirando is trying to rebake itself after certain atrocities, which is their own word. Um, <laughs> like, uh, trying to, to redo its image. Right. Uh, that, I mean, it's all just... Uh, it, it's all just uh, surface resurfacing, right? It's still doing... Uh, kind of ruthless things sure. underneath it's just it's pr it's nonsense all PR. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and uh, the i'm sitting there going boy i don't even think they'd need to do in this day this movie is almost a almost <laughs> optimistic in the sense that they uh, people might not use a company because it's uh they don't like its stance now it, i feel like right. but i mean the ending of this movie is basically like yeah it's all things could yeah. change yeah, yeah. like uh, the idea that like people will it's i think it's it's pretty cynical about that but not necessarily uh unfair to be like well if it's cheap enough people will keep showing up anyway yeah all right well we've we've talked about the movie we've talked about netflix we've talked a little about the super pig let's talk about the elephant in the room Jake, Jake, Gyllenhaal? Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes, yeah. uh, you like this performance, and I do not. Yes, yes. So he plays Doctor Johnny Wilcox. Uh, the, the Wikipedia description of him is, is he's a zealous zoologist and TV personality. I'm I'm trying to think if there is any sort of analog for him in the real world. He's sort of like the crocodile hunter. Yeah, maybe with a little like Richard Simmons. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I. <sighs> I feel like clearly he started as a crocodile hunter style character. Yes, and then, that's how he was written. Yes, and then somewhere along the way, maybe through Gyllenhaal's like interpretation of it, De- he becomes dementia. this like strange cartoon right. of a of a human being who kind of like leaps around with this. He's always wearing shorts. Yeah, always wearing shorts. Uh, making he wears weird glasses. Uh, he makes kind of like odd faces his voice is much higher and then when he goes on camera it's suddenly like low and and kind of resonance yes um and he has the corporation has basically bought him as a spokesperson after he became famous for having an animal tv show right so he is extremely morally compromised and is the the kind of face of their fake uh animal loving uh facade mm-hmm. why do you like this performance <laughs> Well, you know, there are parts of it that I don't know that they necessarily work. I guess I just like the fact that sort of like to me, he's like the movie in microcosm in a way. It's that just he's he's going for broke. He's taking chances. He's not doing something that's safe or normal or expected um, that he is willing to really go outside of the box. Just go for broke, go over the top, be funny and dark at the same time, be very disturbing, but also really funny. 
and uh, I just couldn't take my eyes off him. I mean, maybe if I saw it again and I now knew what to expect, I would be less enamored with it. But I was absolutely charmed by him because I was just so I was just sitting sitting there with my jaw dropped on the floor because I was like, what is he doing? This is unbelievable. And I think for you just felt the exact same way, but just hated it. Yeah, so yeah. like, what is he doing? This, this is, is horrible. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, I just it reminded me of like watching Johnny Depp in recent things, where I'm like, it's so oh, self conscious. That's, that's I just doesn't that's, feel like he does, cool. it wasn't. It didn't feel to me like he was playing a role. It felt to me like the joke was, look at it's Jake Gyllenhaal doing mm-hmm. this. Uh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal going big and like taking off his shirt and having like a pot belly of a little bit like you know that like i it it seemed to me like that was the only thing that the the guiding force of that performance and i just it just like in in a movie that does have like these huge tonal shifts that i think it handles really well uh and that has like really outlandish characters he was the only one who didn't feel like a character to me he felt like someone just basically acting out hmm and I feel like also, and, and I don't even think this is the way the role is written. I think that this is just like a way that the, because the performance has no particular focus, he just like veers into doing this. Like it's a little bit that the joke is he's closeted. He keeps putting his hand on like men's thighs. And I feel like that's a pretty cheap jo- shot. Mm. And mm. I just, and I wish that wasn't there. Yeah. I, you know, he's a, Jake Gyllenhaal is an actor who, he goes, he's exterior. He, you know, it's a lot of bigness in his performances. And uh, I, you know, I, it, it worked for me in yeah. this case. I, 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 I enjoyed the the ride that he took me. I on. feel like Tilda got the she got it tone better, and in a way that I thought was great, and he did not for me. I, you know, again, I there are parts of it that I can't really defend, and there are parts of it like there are scenes in it where I just that you know that go on a very long time and that are just not great. But I, I just, again, like I felt on the whole, it's like, if you're going to make a movie like this, why not go for broke? Like you, he's given freedom here that he's not normally given. And sure. he embraced that maybe too much, but he embraced it. And I appreciated that. Can we at least agree that Paul Dano is really good he, in the movie? He is really good. I was thinking there is a scene where he like, where he takes like this shard out of Okja's foot. Yeah. And I cried because oh. there's something just about, he plays a character who is just so benevolent he is like mm. the purest character in the uh the 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 like force of idealism mm-hmm. in this in this movie and i think he just like allows it to beam forth from his face really well yeah um and i and i really enjoyed that especially like leading a group of animal liberation activists who are not always all that together right I like that the movie does not paint them as um, easily heroic. Right. They're not necessarily the good guys They're in the well story. They're well-meaning, but they have their own agenda. Yes. And I like that they also are divided in what the be- most ethical way to live your life is. Yes. Like there's the one there's some very funny scenes where they're sort of bickering over the right way to be an animal rights right. activist. There's one of their member who keeps fainting because he's trying so hard to minimize his carbon <laughs> footprint that he doesn't eat food at yeah. all if he can help it. Yeah. Some of their scenes reminded me of just like being on Twitter and watching people who yes. ag- generally generally agree right. about Watching their like, on the left politically yeah. yeah yeah they agree about everything and yet the, all they do all day is yell at each other like i thought it captured that perfectly yes. which is very very timely yeah. in this day and age can we talk about uh an so hyung who's mija I she's thought, great she's so great and yeah. she does like she's not just a like the kind of in in the like 
kid move kid adventure arc of this she is mm-hmm. not just like the elliot she is also an action hero she, yeah she like she gets beat up she like chase jumps scenes. on top, chase scenes she jumps on top of a truck she is hangs really, off a cliff yes she is also fabulously like kind of uncute the movie mm. does not try and have her be like adorable in any way. She's just ferocious. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. She's very tough. Yeah. I agree. There's something very like wonderfully like, well, but, but she has to be. That character demands it. Yeah. You know, this character goes to literally, almost literally to the ends of the earth for her super pig. So she better be tough. You know, a, a character that was sweet or cute would probably just stay on, on the farm. Yeah. So that's what's required of the role. And she is, she's perfect at it. Yeah, she is. I, I really just, I love the way that the character, which is a, I, I, there's like a, a young girl around that age in Snowpiercer Mm -hmm. and in the host. Mm -hmm. And they are always like these resourceful, I feel like if you're supposed to have a type, if you're supposed to have any hope for the future in these movies, (laughs) it is through these characters. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't (laughs) thought about that. You're you're totally right. All right, we're we're going a little long here. Any final observations we want to point out to say? Well, I think that we can roll this into our next segment. But Mm -hmm. I do think that you know we talk we have talked about the kind of forces of globalism on movies, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes that has been that has felt like a bad thing, right? It has felt like when you watch uh, a giant tentpole movie now that sure. is, has to make at least half of its money back internationally. And it feels like sometimes it just means that your movie is like sanded. All of the, the, the distinguishing characteristics are sanded off and uh, different stars from different parts of the world are like plunked in there sometimes in really token roles. Mm-hmm. And it feels pandering to everyone, Yes, you know? And I think that this movie feels like a globalized movie as well in a great way, Mm. you know? Like it has a cast from all over the place. It is half in Korean and half in English. It has a character who is a Korean American translating sometimes poorly, you know? (laughs) Deliberately sometimes, sometimes which is awesome. Uh, I I think that there is something about the scope of this movie, the fact that it doesn't feel particularly Western in terms of its approach and tone. I think that there's a lot about that that's really heartening to me about the idea that you can do a movie that is so kind of sprawling and multinational and have it feel even more idiosyncratic and distinctive. I think that's a a great point. You know, we see in our job so many these days, so many of the blockbusters feel like deliberately dumbed down so that they can be understood by any audience anywhere speaking any language. And here, you know, that, that sort of the, that, that kind of culture clash is like embedded into the film. Um, in the fact that there are those scenes where they're trying to translate between the Korean characters and the American characters. And I thought those were some of the funniest, smartest, most interesting scenes in the movie. And if we do sort of take this, you know, if we do want to look at this in some ways as a commentary on uh, globalization or maybe even Netflix or the film industry, you know, or, you know, if we say that it's about a studio, not necessarily about Netflix, then the idea of those, uh, those cultures kind of trying to talk to one another and having difficulty with that is part of that commentary. And, and it's, it's pretty great. Uh, and I agree. It is nice to see a movie that is designed to play all over the world. That isn't a piece of stupid garbage like that's actually smart and interesting and funny and is about things and uh if this could be the model for you know global film that's designed for an international audience that would be phenomenal i don't necessarily need more movies about super pigs but with this spirit of independence and freedom and uh doing something 
you know, on a relatively big budget and, you know, hitting certain beats, but willing to also push buttons and make statements and be weird and be ambitious and be ambitious. ambitious. Yes. That's a great word for it. It certainly is. I, I had a great time with this movie. I am really glad it exists. I think if you don't, if you're not a Netflix, Netflix subscriber, it's worth eight bucks yes, for the month to absolutely. watch Okja. Yeah. I think this alone justifies a month of Netflix. Yeah, and uh, I would agree. It's it's pretty special. And so that is Okja, and you can find it on Netflix. All right, our cue shots topic, multilingual movies. And I would say this is one of the sort of, I don't know, niche is the right word, but like a lot of times we do a, a, a topic here. There's lots of lists online it's very easy to do the research to find the films because there's a lot already out there there's not a lot of lists of these movies i found it hard to like i mean i thought of a couple of examples but it was hard to kind of there was this is not a topic that there is a lot of discussion about yeah we're, i don't know i'm not gonna say we're breaking new ground but it's 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 breaking relatively unexplored ground right people don't often set out to make a movie that in which characters end up speaking insignificant chunks of time more than one language. Right. Uh, I don't know why that is other than... Well, well, it's, again, it's probably, getting back to what we were talking about with Okja, it's like, it's probably not great business sense to make a movie that, you know, because even if you're selling, if you're selling it everywhere, you have to, let you know, you might have to change the dialogue twice. Sure. But I think that also... I don't know. A subtitles lot of, everywhere. A lot of people hate subtitles. Yeah, but in a lot of other parts of the of the world, people are much more used to subtitles than we are. Well, we're we're dumb like that, <laughs> crotchety, <laughs> set in our ways. We don't put up with uh with that a lot. No, but um, you know, I think that one of the things that is impressive about Okja is that it figures out ways to have its characters communicate or not communicate that feel. That, that are built into the movie and yes. that don't always feel like kind of awkward. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sometimes though it is awkward to speak different languages, which is the case for some of, some of the picks I've had. Mm -hmm. But Matt, why don't you start off? What is your All right. first pick? My first pick is in a whole bunch of languages, not just two. There's English, Italian, German, French, Mandarin. It is the red violin from 1998 directed by Francois Girard. In this case, the multiple languages are, well, it's the result of it basically being an, a unique or unusual anthology film in which all of the episodes are connected uh, around this violin, which is supposedly one of the rarest and most beautiful, most amazing sounding violins that's ever been made as it passes through different owners through centuries. And for a variety of reasons, different reasons and different you know, segments, it, the, the violin goes from like Vienna to Oxford to Shanghai. And then in each country, there's a different kind of almost like a short story about its owners there. Usually they don't end very well. It's almost like this, this object is like cursed in a, in a way. And uh, the final segment is the thing that sort of connects everything. It's like the frame story. It is about the present or the present of the late nineties where the violin is now being auctioned off in Montreal, and there's all these different owners or potential owners. They're all at the auction, and they all want it for different reasons relating to the different stories that we've seen throughout the film. And so, you know, in, in this case, the, the, because the movie is in segments, you know, the languages don't necessarily overlap all that much the way they do in Okja because, it's, you know, they're different 
stories that are only connected by the violin. There are some. There's a little bit of it in the final uh, segment. It's in Montreal, so there's some people speaking in English and there's some people speaking in French. Um, but still, I think the movie works in part because it is in so many different languages. Because, as we've sort of already s- said, if everyone in this movie was speaking in English with different accents, like oh, these are the these people are in Italy because they're in English, they're they're English. They're speaking in English, but they're doing it with Italian accents. Uh-huh. Like it would just be horrible. And the fa- but that is a convention. It is a con- absolutely that. I mean, that is for, for everyone having a British accent because a British accent. Right in France, everyone yes. everyone speaks French, but it sounds to our ears like <laughs> English with a British accent. Um, but yeah, just the fact that everyone in this movie is talking in the correct language for their time and their their period it just adds to the sense of reality in the movie which i think is especially important here because this is you know it's like a it's a canadian or it's a you know like multinational co-production but it doesn't have a ton of money and it doesn't and because it's in all these different t- periods it has even less sort of time and money to establish the period details and the sets and the costumes and so just having that fact that everyone in this movie no matter where we are speaking in the actual language it just kind of sets this it's like a shorthand of reality almost it establishes this that this is something that really happened obviously it's a fictional film but it just creates that convincing uh layer of reality on top of everything the red violin is also uh i'm not sure if i don't know if you've seen this movie Allison, I have but, seen this okay movie. well this is how i feel about it it is one of the sneaky secret great samuel L. jackson performances mm, yeah, which yeah. is not often discussed because well partly because i think the movie is not that well known a lot of people haven't seen it but also because it's so different than what he normally does he in the in the film he's the appraiser who comes to the auction to evaluate the like the value and authenticity of these pieces for the auction and and he sees the red violin there and it and it sort of sets him off and he's uh, he, well I won't tell you what happens but we're watching him kind of investigate its authenticity examining it and he's looking at it it's just a great Samuel Jackson performance where he doesn't he's not doing a lot of screaming or yelling or cursing I don't know if he says any profanity in the entire movie which might be a record for him um he does say comprende at one point in a very Samuel L. Jackson way, which is maybe the only moment where he seems like a typical Sam Jackson guy. But it's a really good performance and um, more subdued than he usually does, which is great. And he just the way he looks at this violin with such intensity. Frankly, he looks there's almost like lust in his eyes. He, uh, I think he might want to covetous, have covetousness. I think he might want to have sex with the violin. I think that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's not like really out of uh the, mo- <laughs> the movie also. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That does kind of fit with the movie. But yeah, there's some amazing shots uh of him peering at it through the F the F hole in the violin, the hole in the body of the violin, like sort of with that in the foreground and him in the background that are great. Just wonderful shots. Uh, it's a good movie. I, I had not seen this movie in almost 20 years when I rewatched it this morning, and um, it holds up really nicely. It's a good movie. It's well-written. It's well-acted, well-directed. I like the fact that all these people get to talk in the country's actual languages. And yeah, Sam Jackson. Good Sam Jackson performance in this one. So that is The Red Violin. You can rent it. It is also available right now on Stars. So if you're a subscriber to Stars, you can stream it on their website right now. Um, that was a great pick, and I had forgotten actually that that was a movie that is so heavily in other languages and yes. that doesn't do the normal historical drama trick of having someone speak 
English with a French accent. Right. Yeah. Uh, I did notice, it's interesting, in each of our picks here, we didn't actually go for anything that is an immigrant story, though an immigrant story is also potentially one that is a multilingual movie. We right. went for movies about travelers or expats instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is true for my pick, my first pick, which is Japanese Story. And it's currently streaming on Amazon Prime. This is the 2003 film directed by Sue Brooks, who's an Australian filmmaker, starring Tony Collette and Gotaru uh, Tsuneshima. Uh, it is really a movie about the um, that people uh, about how many ways people have trouble communicating um, and actually knowing each other, and language being only one of them. Uh, so Collette plays Sandy Edwards. This. Uh, tomboyish woman who works at a company that makes geological software uh, and her business partner kind of forces her to take over for him a playing guide for a potential client, an executive from a Japanese company who's there to see the mines. Um, the movie takes place in Western Australia and it is this like gorgeous and vast and often potentially dangerous wilderness. The businessman is named Hiromitsu Tachibana and there are hints um, from very early on that he's not there for business purposes necessarily. He's almost running away on a vacation under the guise of doing something pragmatic. Um, so Sue and Hiromitsu end up spending most of the rest of the movie together. Uh, and they misunderstand each other right away. He treats her like a hired driver, uh, like the help. And she thinks he's an imperious jerk. And the film is split between English and Japanese, tending more towards English because it's in Australia. That's what everyone else speaks. Um, and does a lot to kind of explore how language difference works. In particular, um, Hiromitsu spends most of his time at first when he's in the car on the phone pretending to be on business calls. Though we understand because we have subtitles that he's just chatting with a friend or sometimes chatting with no one. Mm. He is kind of uh, keeping up his cover and also creating this like wall in which he uh, doesn't have to sit in uncomfortable silence with with Sandy. Um, And, uh, you know, she is uh, both kind of exasperated by and attracted to him, this kind of aristocratic business suit wearing man who insists on being brought out into the wilderness and almost gets them killed because of it, because he insists on driving down this path that actually the, the car gets stuck on. Uh, the movie is a romance, uh, and then it becomes something else. And I, I don't hate the turn it takes, but it, I do feel like it definitely spends too much time on the last act. Um, but it has so many really nice moments of misunderstanding and miscommunication between the two characters, um, including ones in which, uh, you know, uh, sayings like, hot enough for you, uh, get totally lost in translation. Or there's a really nice moment after things have kind of thawed between these two characters in which uh, Hiromitsu explains the many things that hi, yes, in Japanese can mean. Mm. One of them being no. <laughs> he's, you know, and he's like, sometimes you say hi because you have to, but you actually mean no. Uh, and there was another really great moment uh, that happens during the first bedroom scene in which uh, Sandy strips down and then she puts on his dress pants, um, which is one of those moves that at once makes no sense and perfect sense. You know, that as if you could just skip the talking and get inside someone's head by putting on their clothes. It's uh, in all of the ways that the movie kind of plays off 
cultural differences and then kind of gender expectations between these two characters as well. That instance just sums up everything wordlessly, really, in a way that I thought was really nice. It's a small movie, but it's a really gracefully done one. Uh, That is Japanese Story. It is on Amazon. Okay. My second pick has a surprising connection with my first pick, which I did not realize until I watched it. Canadian actor Colm Fiore is in both films. (gasps) He apparently that was my secret extra theme this uh, this week. He plays the auctioneer in the Red Violin, and in my second pick, which is the film Bon Cop Bad Cop, which is available on Netflix, he plays uh, I guess Bon Cop. I guess the good cop. He's the good cop. Yeah, this movie uh, it's from two thousand six. It is basically like a multilingual riff on the classic buddy cop comedy where you have a pair of mismatched partners who hate each other. They get stuck together to solve a case. And over the course of the case, they come to a mutual appreciation, of course. Now, in this case, uh, a body is found hanging on, on the sign marking the border between Ontario and Quebec. And so one cop from each prov- province, you've got the straight-laced Martin Ward, who's played by Colm Fiore, and then the uh, the rule-breaking David Bouchard, who's played by Patrick Ward, are assigned to find the killer together. And as buddy cop movies go, I have to give credit. I thought it was a very clever twist on the old formula. And what I liked best is the, the, the sort of the language barrier being used in the film, the way that they use that to tell jokes, to deliver information, hide information from each other, or just kind of like snipe at each other where they're saying things in different languages at each other or talking kind of behind their backs. Some scenes are in English, others are in French. Sometimes uh, the the Ontario cop, you know, he speaks French, but not that well. So he's trying to understand what's happening. He can't quite make out what's what's being discussed. And the whole scenario about, like, literally a dead body that's, like, right on the border between the two provinces is absurd. But, I mean, well, also, it every is, buddy cop movie is absurd. Yeah, and that's also been the premise of, like, um, uh, The Bridge, right? Well, Which, it happens all the time. I mean, it's – what my point was just that, you know, like, it's it's sort of knowing in its absurdity in the film. And the it's, like – it's it's an excuse, but it's a good excuse because I found that the sort of – the way that they turn this scenario into comedy, I thought, repeatedly was very well done. Uh, this movie was a, actually a Genie Award winner, which is the mm. Canadian Oscar for the best film of 2006, and they recently made a sequel, Bon Cop, Bad Cop 2, just in the last year or so, which I have not seen with both of the original lead actors. I'm not uh, probably not going to race out and watch the sequel, but I had a really good time watching this. I think if you are a fan of buddy cop movies, as I am, I think this is a nice variation on the genre. You have not seen this premise uh, done this way before. I had a good time with it. It is Bone Cop, Bad Cop, available on Netflix. Okay, well, my second pick has very little in common with that one, but it is, I think, of all of, as we talk about multilingual movies and also these kind of, like, movies about a globalized future, a globalized world, maybe my favorite person in terms of portraying this kind of jet-lagged, polyglot uh, boardrooms and hotel rooms and airport lounges, not quite sci-fi William Gibson sensibility, is Olivier Assayas, who... Uh, it just only occasionally dips into this. You see it a little bit 
in fair like personal shopper Mm -hmm. or clouds of sils maria Mm -hmm. but the two films that embody it the most are the film i'm going to talk about demon lover and it's kind of not quite follow-up boarding gate uh, Demon Lover kind of goes business class where Boarding Gate goes coach, I would say. Uh, De- Demon Lover is this complicated and eventually incomprehensible story about corporate espionage and these two multinational companies fighting over the rights to distribute Japanese 3D animated porn. Uh, never before do. Has, has porn been as coveted and competed <laughs> over a, a kind of quality than quantity than uh, it is in this movie. Connie Nielsen uh, stars as Diane, who is an executive ruthless enough that we see her drug a rival on a flight back from Japan in the opening scene and then arrange for that rival to be mugged in order to take her place in this big deal. And to kind of, this movie takes place in French and in English and in Japanese and Everyone always seems to be speaking maybe like uh, not their native language (laughs) oftentimes. Nielsen is a Danish actress who speaks mostly French. Chloe Sevigny, who becomes increasingly important in the movie, is uh, the assistant of the the drugged woman who gets her place. An American doing the same. There are scenes like the one in which there's a business meeting involving uh, Japanese executives Nielsen, uh, one of the French executives, and there's a Japanese to French translator. And during a particularly tough moment, the two parties start speaking directly to each other in English, which they both speak very well. Uh, It's a movie that navigates language barriers like so fluidly and also uh, shows multilingualism as this power move as well. You know, uh, in- including like times where you put a translator between you to create a little space. Um, the movie, it, it like fetishizes blatantly, like kind of the idea of ruthless business and its high end trappings, including, including like room service and get you know uh, drinks at clubs and and all of these people who are extremely powerful and only ever look at anything in this kind of assessing way like how it can be used to make money and this is a movie that is definitely about being desensitized um it kind of famously has violent or highly sexualized fare playing in screens uh and everyone if they look at it at all looks at it kind of indifferently or blankly uh, that includes the 3D porn that that gets shown. That includes the violent, you know, explosions and people on fire movies that play in the background. That includes a scene where Chloe Sevigny stares like dead-eyed at a video game that she's playing. That really is like maybe the epitome of this movie. I love this movie. It is extreme. <laughs> people, a lot of people do not. I will say fan. that if you try and parse what is happening in like maybe the second half of the movie. Yeah, it, you're doing you it wrong. Yeah, that is not the point. No. But I think that the world it creates is so kind of seductive and chilly and uh, perfect. You know, it, it, it coheres so well, even if you don't understand how it works. Um, and it is a world in which the globalization and the multilingualism makes sense uh, because if you are a power player in it, you basically live nowhere or you live in every big city. Mm. You live in a hotel room. You live in business class on a private, you know, on a flight. And I, I think that it is so good at at summing, summing up this world that is 
an exaggeration, but not really that much of an exaggeration of this idea of like powerful executives uh, darting around the world, making deals that uh, that will affect the rest of uh, everyone else um, and bring the world closer together, sometimes in ways that seem very ugly, particularly in how it ends. Um, so that's Demon Lover. It is available for rent. All right, let's talk about some new movies here, movies that are not available on streaming yet, movies that were not funded by streaming services. Yet. Yet, yeah. Let's start with the, the maybe not the big new movie in theaters this weekend, but certainly the, the one that um, de- deserves discussion. The other big movies this weekend are Despicable Me 3, which is, I saw, it's not atrocious, but it's not good, and then The House, which they didn't even show to critics at all which i i didn't even realize was opening i know i i sort of it like only dawned on me like days before it opened because i was actually looking forward to that movie because i'm a big will ferrell fan big amy poehler fan the the trailers looked okay it's a premise that could be good sure and it was like oh actually we're not showing it to anyone and, yeah and it's a disaster apparently i don't know uh a.o scott wrote an a. interesting scott sort, of, sort of defense of it all right well i will eventually see that because i I'm a that much of a Will Ferrell partisan that I will seek that out eventually, if only on an airplane or something. That's where I've seen at least half of his movies. Oh, yeah. They're perfect for airplanes. Right. But the movie we are going to talk about is Baby Driver, the new film from Edgar Wright. Uh, it stars Ansel Elgort as Baby, who is this getaway driver for a, a, a gang of criminals uh, led by Kevin Spacey. The gang also includes John Hamm and Jamie Foxx and... He falls for a beautiful diner waitress, and the sort of hook of the whole thing is that Baby has this uh, ringing in his ears from an accident as a child, and to drown it out, he constantly listens to music in his iPod earbud headphones, and the music is kind of interwoven with the crime stuff, so it's almost like a musical crime comedy thing. Allison... I think we're both big Edgar Wright fans. We are, yes, absolutely. Huge Edgar Wright fans, but are you a huge Baby Driver fan? I am not. And mm. I feel like, certainly, this felt like almost, saying that feels like kicking a puppy a bit. Uh, a, cinoph- a personal betrayal. A big cinephile puppy, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I just never, I, I feel like the first big scene of this works. I, it's fun. You can see what he wanted to do. Uh, you're talking about the long take yes and there's like a the first bank robbery there's a big yeah there's a big chase scene and then there's a big long take where he's sort of walking down the street right to music and the music is interacting perfectly with every single sound effect it almost seems like the sound effects are on the soundtrack of like in the song yes there's stuff like graffiti on the walls where like the the words of the song are like reflected on screen it's incredibly dense and layered and detailed in a way that must have taken forever forever. to put together it's very carefully done but i i just i I felt like the rest of this movie never kind of delivered the pure joy that it clearly aimed to Mm. uh i just felt like i I mean it was i don't know if it's the first but it was the first edgar wright movie in a long time that is not using its pop culture references to kind of specifically comment on some real world you know uh, drama, including from like, um, I don't know, uh, to failed friendships and getting older in the world's end or uh, dealing with an ex's baggage in Scott Pilgrim. Right. You know, all of these movies that are so steeped in pop culture, but use them, use those references to kind of comment 
on on other emotional experiences. And this is a movie that is like pretty straightforward. It it kind of has a lot of influences, but it's it's on the level. It is about a guy who, you know, had this tragic past, is really good at driving, meets the girl, wants to run away with her, has to do one last job. Right. Uh, and I just, I felt like it was a little hollow. Mm. How about you? I think I enjoyed it a little more than you, but I would also say I was a little disappointed by it, and it's probably... Uh, I think definitely like my least favorite Edgar Wright movie. Yes, same. And well, I don't know. Have you seen Fistful of Fingers? I haven't. Okay. I've, I've never had a chance to see that one. I still have to watch that one. But uh, amongst his big films, this is the one that I was probably my least favorite, at least on first viewing. I do agree that that you know it it, it presents this incredibly like dense that that opening is really very carefully done, and I don't know that the movie ever really tops it. Or ever really, after that, really justifies the whole conceit of this guy listening to music. It's mostly just, you know, it's a great soundtrack, don't get me wrong. But there's never, I didn't really think there were too many other examples that were that clever or that impressive. That it kind of uh, starts really high, but then it never really tops itself. And I and I do agree, it's pretty superficial. I mean, I, I really felt I was missing Simon Pegg's presence and his contributions to the script. And... You know, thinking about them working separately, like Simon Pegg wrote the last Star Trek movie, which I loved, and I thought had a ton of ideas in it. It was an action movie, but it was also really rich in stuff. There was stuff going on there about getting older, about Brexit. It was about a ton of stuff. And I, di- I did kind of go, like, is Simon Pegg like the secret genius in that combination? Not that I don't think Edgar Wright is incredibly talented, but I, 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 was, I, I was near the end of this movie where I realized I really didn't care what was happening. Yeah. I did think to myself, boy, I miss, I kind of miss Simon Pegg. And I wish he was involved in some way. Or what if, if he was involved, if he had at least helped to write the script, how different would this movie be? The other thing I wanted to say is, well, I, I had a, generally had a good time with the movie. I would recommend it. I think it's fun. I just, I don't think it's much more than that. But I did have a good time with it. I didn't love, I still don't get the Ansel Elgort phenomenon. Yeah. I don't get it at all. I mean, I liked him more in this than I have in other things, but I still don't think that he sells a movie very well. I just, I don't think he's a, you know, like he looks great in the role. He's got really cool with the glasses. He almost has like an an Elvis thing going with the glasses. I can see it. And, you know, this movie is sort of, and Elvis made a lot of movies where, you know, they weren't quite musicals, but they had a lot of Elvis music. I felt that was maybe part of the reason he cast him because he has that kind of vibe. But I, he just doesn't have a lot more than that. He doesn't, like, it just, again, it's like the whole movie, a little superficial. Well, especially with a character who's silent so much right. of the time, you have to be pretty charismatic yeah. to make people invest in you despite the fact that you're not going to do a lot of and maybe, talking. And maybe it doesn't help that he has so many charismatic people around him who are acting, his, they're just just acting yeah. circles around him. Like John Hamm is amazing in this He's movie. So Jamie Foxx is incredible in yes. this movie. Kevin Spacey is great he in this is. movie. And even, I will say, Lily James sells, does a lot with a character who has nothing to her Very at all. underwritten. She is basically there to be the girl. Yeah. The girl who... It's, a, who, it's perilously close to a Manic Pixie it, dream girl, it, I felt. Yes, it basically is. It feels, I don't know, there's so much of this movie that I feel like it, it wants so badly to be pure in its joys you know like the guy the girl and instead of a gun the car but like i just don't think that it has enough to it 
in terms of just sheer like uh like filmmaking joy or skill mm-hmm. or or charisma to really make that work i i do want to just reiterate i like this movie i feel like i'm being tough on it partly because i am such a huge edgar wright fan and like his movies are amongst my favorite movies so maybe i'm just being a little too hard on it because this one i just don't think is up to his usual incredible level of of uh achievement i still think it's worth seeing i had a good time with it i just i it's not i mean maybe when i see it again i'll i'll or for the hundredth time, I'll come around to it. But on first glance, I was I was a little bit disappointed. Very briefly, the big movie coming out next weekend: Spider Man Homecoming. Apparently, it's a, like a Spider Guy. I don't know. I've never heard of this guy, the Spider Man guy. I guess people like him. I don't know. He shoots webs, swings around. He's a teenager. You're looking at me like you're not going to play along with this bit. So absolutely not. All right, fine. So it's the new Spider Man film. Uh, this is the first one that is made at least in collaboration with Marvel. So they had they got control of their 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 most popular character back. Tom Holland is the new Spider-Man. He debuted in Captain America Civil War with a, a brief but very memorable kind of cameo role. Now he is the star. Robert Downey Jr. is here in a he's got the cameo role now as Iron Man, as Tony Stark. Michael Keaton is the bad guy. He is the vulture, this kind of corrupt uh, salvage guy who is uh, doing whatever it takes to, you know, kind of keep his family afloat. Uh, so he's not, he's not like hard. <laughs> he's doing pretty well. He's doing fine. Yes. Yeah. He is. I think, I feel like of all of the kind of random interesting things that gets put into this movie, the idea of him as like a Trump voter, who's like really mm. angry about the government taking away from his, trying to threaten his small business. <laughs> It's like definitely there. It is there. He has this big speech. Yeah. Where essentially like Tony Stark almost stands in for the Donald Trump's of the world. Yeah. It is kind of interesting. All right. Well, what did you think? I mean, obviously I am a huge Spider-Man fan. So um, I don't know if that makes my opinion have more weight or absolutely no weight. Well, so what I, let's did you just say the last incarnation and who would have thought we'd have three incarnations of Spider-Man? What a in world the last decade. Yeah. Um, Maybe I'm like, do I, am I like a God that I have a secretly can control yeah, the universe? If, if you were, you would have liked all of these. That's a good point. I would have made those second ones. I, better. I think I'm a little fonder of the last of the Andrew Garfield spider, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, yes. than uh, you are yeah, I just those. because I really liked him with Emma, uh, Emma Stone. They were I, great. I that they, I cared a lot less about the whole, all the mechanics of his superhero-ness, yeah. but I really like them together. They I were incredibly likable. I yes. think they're the only redeeming parts of those movies yeah. is I like watching them together and yeah. everything around them is garbage. So I felt like those movies worked really well as romantic comedies. And I feel yeah. like the new movie, this movie works really well as a high school movie. It yes. is almost like a nineties high school comedy with added superhero Stuff, stuff. Um, yeah. I and I, I, I loved it at the beginning. I feel like by the end, I mostly just liked it. I do think that it even, gets more and more yeah. superheroy as it like, goes. Well, and also, like Wonder Woman, I feel like its final battle is doesn't measure up to the action set piece that happens in the middle, which in the Spider- Washington Monument yes. one. Yes. Yeah, that is a pretty cool sequence. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, the end is a little underwhelming. Uh, yes, I agree with that. I yes, I vastly preferred this to to the last couple of uh, the Amazing Spider-Man movies. I haven't really watched um, the first two Sam Raimi Spider-Man in a while. I've actually seen the third one more recently, so I'd have to go back and watch them again to say whether I like this better or not. But I, it's it's at least in the conversation. It's good enough to be considered alongside those. It's it's a very fun movie. I agree. The teen stuff is great. 
uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that it fe- it did remind me a little of Freaks and Geeks. Like yes. all of the kids yeah. in this movie are like nerds. It's at a magnet school in Queens. It's a magnet school, and it they're looks all on the actually like Queens. Like yes. it's not majority white. It's uh, very really diverse nerdy. Cast. It's like legitimately nerdy. Everyone's yes. A big even old the nerd. even the bully Flash Thompson is a nerd, a nerd. in this one. I it's, love that. It's the guy from the Wes Anderson movies. Yeah. Um, Tony Revolori. Tony Revolori. Yeah. Yes, he's who's really good as Flash. He wears a lot of polo shirt, layered polo shirts. Yes. Which immediately makes him the villain, which I thought was great. Um, but he is still also a nerd. Like, all of the kids are dorks. Yeah, he's on the academic decathlon team. Yes. This is a movie that features the main subplot academic decathlon. academic decathlon. So I, I liked, it did feel a little Freaks and Geeksy to me. It's co-written by Sam from Freaks and Geeks and co-stars Martin Starr from Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. So I don't think that's accidental. But I did like all of that stuff. And I, you know, the superhero stuff. There's some, there's some good stuff in there. I think they they did a good job of not just recycling, you know, Superman, uh, Superman, Spider Man swinging around. Like yeah. the second series, it kind of just rehashed what we'd already seen. Like right. there wasn't anything really brand new about right. that. So we skip all of the origin stuff that's already yes. that's happened off screen. Thank we, God. They don't talk about Uncle Ben. Right. There's no one says with great power comes great responsibility. Right. He's still a kid. He's 15 years old. He's at least as concerned with uh, what's going on in high school. And then also like kind of proving himself. Right. He wants to be an Avenger and Tony Stark's not having it. Yeah. Which for good reason, he is still 15 years old. I don't know. The small scaleness of a lot of this is good. And I thought Keaton was really good. Keaton is awesome in this movie. He's kind of the secret MVP. There's actually a lot of good performances in it. I think Tom Holland is incredibly likable as, as Peter Parker and as Spider-Man. He's probably the best. I don't know about he's the best Peter Parker, but he's definitely the best Spider-Man in terms of he's like the funniest one where he seems the most comfortable being the Spider-Man you've read in comic books where Tobey Maguire was better as sort of the the melodrama Spider-Man, the guy who's like the mopey guy. Yeah. And Andrew Garfield was incredibly handsome and sort of like the hunky Spider-Man. He was good at the romance. He was good at the romance. Tom Holland is really good at, at the quips and just seeming like a kid, like a fun-loving kid. Like, he really embraces that part of the character and is really fun. But yes, Keaton, like, he doesn't have a ton of screen time. You almost wish he had, like, three more scenes, which I could actually say about a lot of the characters. Like, I wanted more Marissa Tomei. She's not in it that much. Yeah. But what he does get, like, he... like he. I mean, just like he did with Batman. Like, he treats it like this is, a, this is like a real role. This is a real guy. It's a real role. He's not it's, he's not goofing around, and I think that he brings a level of gravitas to this character that not a lot of actors would have would have done. Yeah, he's a real person, and his his kind of villainous like villainous qualities all come from real reasons. Like yes, real. Ex- he has a real reasons explanation. You buy you buy. Yeah, that it's not just like I you know lab experiment. I'm evil. I hate everything. Yes, yes. Uh, he's really good. He's really yeah. good. Yeah, I, and I and, and, it. and the character like the writing the screenplay makes sense where they're sort of there's a balance there between like Peter Parker and the vulture kind of perfect opposites in a lot of ways, which I thought was very cleverly done where, you know, one's very young and innocent. One is very jaded and cynical, but they're both, you know, they, they have a lot of similarities and, and they both want Tony Stark's approval. It's true. So yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun superhero movie. There's actually been a lot of good superhero movies this year. No, uh, every time you Wonder think Woman, that you've Guardians. Got, you've kind of like burned out on, uh, this genre at least these movies are trying to do something different yeah yeah all right well we talked quite at length there so sorry oh well let's get right to 
behind the eight ball. We wrap things up on the show with some new movies on streaming, some listener recommendations you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, who's going first this time? I'm going to go first. All right. Well, let's start with three new releases. Okay. First up, Nerve is on Amazon and Hulu. You may remember this. This is the social media game oh, thriller yeah, starring Emma Roberts. I wanted Emma to Roberts. see this. Yes. Uh, I'm adding this now. Um, you know, I may be a bit of an apologist for the cinema do catfish. <laughs> uh, I really liked the Zac Efron EDM movie, We Are Your Friends, oh. which is directed by TV show co-host Max Joseph. And I liked most of Nerve, which is directed by Henry Joost and Ariel Schulman, who did the doc on which catfish the tv show is based um but i i think that this movie it, it the the game that it conceives of is really actually believable it is cleverly done i would say like the ending takes a turn that's like very over the top but so much of the rest of this is just a really good time uh so that's nerve it's on amazon and hulu New to Netflix is Caramel. This is Nadine Labaki's 2007 debut film set in a Beirut beauty salon and very steadfastly not a film about war, even though shooting uh, of the shooting of the film finished a little over a week before the Israel-Lebanon war uh, of 2006 erupted. So it is uh, kind of this presence in the background, but otherwise this is about Lebanese women. It's just like about this very female space and all of these women, they're kind of like various problems, including one of them having an affair with a married man, one of them about to be married and is no longer a virgin. Um, it's uh, really good. And uh, I, I, I'm always interested to see what Labaki is doing. So that is on Netflix, Caramel. And finally, new to Sundance now is Hated, Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies, which could have fit into our last podcast about music docs. It is a music doc about Gigi Allen, the notorious punk rocker, less famous for his music than his live performances, in which he would get naked, throw bottles at the crowd, uh, poop on stage, and do any substance he could find. Um, this movie was completed in 1993, which was also the year he died of a heroin overdose. It was made by a junior at NYU by the name of Todd Phillips, who would, of course, go on to direct such films as Old School and The Hangover. So that is on Sundance Now, Hated, Gigi Allen, and The Murder Junkies. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Well, I've got one from Spencer from Delaware here, who writes, If you have Fandor, I highly recommend the films of Chadian director Mamet Saleh Haroun. I'm sorry if I butchered a part of that. Uh, they are available there. There are three. Darat, the story of a teenager who is sent to kill the man who killed his father before he was born. Things take a turn from there. Grigri. Uh, uh, the story of a paraplegic man who is trying to be a professional dancer and a screaming man. The story of a father and son at odds because the father loses a job to his son. Each is set in modern Chad and explores how the political climate affects the common citizen. Uh, so thank you for that, Spencer. And I have a recommendation from Nick who writes, I've recently discovered Samuel Fuller and I want to share him with everyone I know. 
1963 film Shock Corridor is my favorite out of the few I've seen so far. It's about a news reporter who goes undercover and commits himself to a mental institution in an attempt to solve a murder that took place there. It is at once a shocking story and a critique of social issues of the 1960s, some of which still shockingly ring true today. It is available to stream on the Criterion channel on Filmstruck and rentable on Amazon for $2.99. The only warning I have for this film is to watch out for the nymphos, which is always good Always advice. good advice. Yeah, I agree. All right. How about one film chosen blindly by... My list. You gave me number 10. Uh, number 10 is Suntan. It's a Greek film directed by... Here we go. Uh, Aguirre's Papadimetropolis. Nailed it. Yeah. Uh, And it is about this middle-aged doctor who has been assigned to a small island in Greece that's basically a vacation spot. And he becomes obsessed with this young, beautiful vacationer. uh, And it is apparently a fairly biting uh, comedy about being middle-aged <laughs> and aging. Um, I know, I'd heard good things about it, and so I added it to my my list. Matt. Yes. Are you ready? Yes. Give me three new releases. Okay. First up on Netflix is Punch Drunk Love, the Paul Thomas Anderson film that has been for 15 years now used as the justification for permitting Adam Sandler to continue torturing movie lovers year (laughs) after year after year. Look, he made Punch Drunk Love. He's not all bad. They're not all bad. And he's not. And they're not. Uh, And Punch Drunk Love is still wonderful. This curious love story about a toilet plunger salesman guy and uh, the woman he falls in love with there are also pudding scams harmoniums and philip seymour hoffman as a mattress salesman and six sex uh sex phone line magnate it is very good maybe not good enough to excuse 15 years of bad movies but very good it is punch drunk love which is now on netflix uh next up on tubi tv is they came together uh, it is, at least for a few more months, the most recent film from David Wayne of The State and Wet Hot American Summer fame. This movie stars Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler. It's his satire of romantic comedies. It is not uh, punch-drunk love good, but it is very funny. Has some sequences that I still think about and quote. Isn't that right, Allison? Mm. You could say that again. Mm. Yeah, tell me about it. Mm. You could say that again. Make it end. Yeah, tell me about it. Uh, if you wanted a full discussion of that film, uh, it was our Listener's Choice Review on Filmspotting SVU number 64. You can find that online. Finally, available on Amazon starting on July 6th is The Salesman, the Oscar-winning drama from Iranian filmmaker Asghar Farhadi. The film is about a couple who move into a new apartment uh, where the wife is the victim of an unseen assault and how the husband's obsessive need for something, justice maybe, vengeance maybe, slowly affects their relationship. Even though the film did win the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar, it didn't get as strong reviews as uh, A Separation or About Ellie. I thought it was really, really good. Maybe not quite to the level of those other movies, but just the tiniest step down and very much worth watching. So that is The Salesman. That's going to be on Amazon Prime on July 6th. Okay, give me two listener recommendations. Our first this time, or my first this time, comes from John in Austin. 
uh, Texas, I assume. He says, I will take this occasion to begin my quest to receive audio acknowledgement from one of my most respected movie podcast hosts by stating that the Russo Brothers 2002 film Welcome to Collinwood does indeed exist. You can't believe everything you read on the internet, so I am needing to hear it spoken via podcast that the film, which in my possible fever dream recollection starred Bill Macy, Sam Rockwell, uh, Patricia Clarkson, and George Clooney, had has been seen by someone other than me and my wife. The Russos are now known for the Captain America films, the Avengers films, and with all the coverage Marvel gets, uh, especially the Winter Soldier, I thought I would have heard at least one mention of Welcome to Collinwood. Uh, I did not. Not only does the film have an Ocean's Eleven rivaling cast of talented actors, it's not just one of my personal favorite heist movies. It is hilarious and eminently rewatchable. Not only a romp, with some very earned melancholy at its core, it is available for rent. We can confirm that movie exists. It does exist. Yes. Well, I have not seen it. I don't think I've ever seen it either. I I, I'm trying to remember. If I have, it's been a very long time. So that's Welcome to Collinwood. Thank you for that recommendation, John. Uh, we also have a recommendation from Scott in Portland. He says, I ran across an amazing film called Traitors on Amazon Prime about an all-female punk band trying to make it in Tangiers. Uh, the actress who plays the band leader is wonderful as she tries to navigate Moroccan norms while trying to stay true to herself and find money to make a demo. I was excited when the Savages showed up on the soundtrack, but not surprised when I found out Sean Gallette, a frequent Aronofsky collaborator, directed this film. So that's Traitors on Amazon Prime. That's a recommendation from Scott. Thank you, Scott. That sounds good. I hadn't heard of that film. That yeah, sounds really either. interesting. All right, give me one from your my list. You gave me number 17, so I had to count all the way down to yeah, number 17 by hand. Thanks a lot, Allison. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 17, well, it's a timely pick, actually. It's The Carmichael Show, oh, yeah. which was just canceled by NBC, I believe. The Carmichael Show is uh, I'll read the plot description. Car- uh, comic Gerard Carmichael minds laughs from his personal life in the sitcom set in Charlotte, North Carolina, and based on his own overbearing family i've heard great things about the show haven't had a chance to watch it and i added it well you can see it's number 17 so i added it a while ago to my my list and i haven't had a chance to check it out so i gotta i gotta watch some of that show it's too late to do anything about it i suppose because the show is now canceled but i'm gonna watch it all the same let's get to our listeners choice options for our next episode we have three recent films to choose from this time allison i believe you have the first one what is it it is Their Finest, uh, which is the recent movie from Lona Scherfig, uh, who is best known for An Education, mm-hmm. One Day. Remember that movie, yes. One Day? Yes, uh, So this is her most recent movie. It's a period movie, a World War II dramedy starring, among others, Gemma Atherton, Atherton and uh, Sam Claflin, who is mm-hmm. everywhere, Bill Nye, Jack Houston, yep. Jake Lacey. Um, Good cast. It is about the British Ministry of Information team. They have mm-hmm. a film team, and they are tasked to make this movie about Dunkirk and the evacuation, uh, and it's supposed to boost morale. So they're supposed to make a feel-good movie about this success. So they recruit Christopher war. Nolan. They're Christopher Nolan, basically, yeah. is what they are. Um, but before the what? age of Harry Styles and before Christopher Nolan came there along. There was no age before the age of Harry Styles. I'm mm, sorry. Well, uh, this is a movie that I know some people really liked, but mm-hmm. it definitely came and went came and really went pretty quietly. quietly. And yeah. considering that it, it's this kind of like 
feel-good movie about i don't we seem to be turning to world war ii a lot recently maybe mm. it's a kind of more clear-cut war in the long at the far distance at this point mm-hmm. it makes it more uh better stuff for movies or at least easier stuff for movies but this seemed like the kind of movie that people would latch on to and instead it just vanished came and went uh, so this would be our time to take a look at it and see if it is worthy of more attention. Uh, so that's your first pick, Their Finest. That is going to be available for rents on the 11th. Okay, our second option, I already mentioned it. It is The Salesman, uh, available on Amazon Prime. Uh, we I already described what it's about. I guess I didn't mention that uh, Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman plays a very key role and uh, and that's where the title comes from as well. It could be interesting. I'm trying to think what the theme could be here. I wonder. I wonder if there's enough options of like movies that involve plays or other works of fiction that aren't actual adaptations. Yeah, that yeah. could be kind of interesting. Mm, the like the movie with a text in the middle of it. Yes. Yeah. Or even Iran. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know that we've ever done an episode that is just about Iran. That's true. Film, one of the Iranian best. Film is incredible. Yeah, one of the best international cinemas out there. And this is, I, you know, I led a discussion group about this movie. We talked about it for like two hours easily. There is, there's a lot going on in this film we could talk about. Uh, I, I, I think that we could have a very good discussion about it. So that's option number two, The Salesman. That is available on Amazon Prime. And option number three is another movie for rents. Uh, it will also be available on the 11th. It is Lost City of Z. Zed. Lost City of Z. Zed. James Gray's movie about British explorer Percy Fawcett, played by Charlie Hunnam, maybe as good as he's ever been. Yeah. Uh, it's quite possible. If, if you've ever been like indifferent towards Charlie Hunnam, this is the movie that maybe showcases him at his best. Yes, I agree. Uh, and it is about the idea of feeling called towards something mm-hmm. and being unable to stay away, even when it takes you away from this life you have at home that you feel desperately also you know uh, drawn towards staying uh mm-hmm. and it's uh, I, I think like a really rich movie about about the idea of having a calling about the idea of exploration and the idea of how people in in south america were thought of by the british uh which is a way it didn't uh percy fawcett diverged from that way of thinking and became obsessed with the idea that there was this kind of technologically advanced city that he could find called zed called the lost city of z zed uh and uh you know i we've both seen this movie already mm-hmm. and i think that it offers just this wealth of things to talk about uh, yes you know maybe even or i mean we both like james gray a lot this yes. might be a time to do a james gray podcast love james gray yeah but also maybe we could do movies about exploration that you know, would be another I think, good topic it, it is particularly uh as our as the way we've depicted it has changed and become mm-hmm. a lot more fraught i think there's potential to do that mm-hmm. um so that's your third choice it is available for rent on the 11th lost city of z all right it's a good lineup this time which movie should we review on the next episode of film spotting streaming video unit send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or just enter in the poll on the bottom of the page at filmspottingsvu.com your vote must be received by monday july 10th at noon after that we'll announce the winner on twitter at our twitter account twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu and you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode which should be out on tuesday july 18th 
filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our episode archive as well as a link to all the titles we discuss in each episode uh the film spotting svu remix theme song is by vince vandal you can always find more of vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com and we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review that you choose and in the meantime you can always find us on twitter i'm at allison wilmore matt is at matt singer and please do follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. And like, give us a like on Facebook. We're at mm. facebook.com slash Filmspotting SVU. We've gotten some good discussion over there mm-hmm. lately, so you may want to check that out. Um, but yes, on both places, we announce the winner of each show's Listener's Choice poll. And uh, sometimes we share streaming suggestions from either you, the SVU listeners, or me, because I compulsively look at streaming services. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>